Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, hey, where you been? Buckeye talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to your Friday Buckeye Talk from Cleveland.com. Doug Lamarie, Nathan Baird, Stephen Means. We're doing Ohio State offense from the Peach Bowl on this podcast. We did defense on the previous podcast. Now we're digging into C.J. Stroud, Ryan Day, Emeka Buka, Marvin Harrison Jr., Luke Whippler, how everybody did against the Georgia Bulldogs. We all watched the game again and came to some conclusions, both about the game, about it, what it tells us about the Ohio State offense going forward. They had 13 possessions, I think is right. 13 possessions. I thought they scored touchdowns on five of their first eight possessions. Nathan, four of seven in the first half and the first drive of the second half. I thought the five touchdown drives were perfection. I thought they were exactly what the Ohio State offense can be, is supposed to be the types of throws they made, the way Ryan Day called it, especially the way C.J. Stroud executed it in the face of the best defensive program, certainly in college football, what Kirby Smart does there, the kind of talent they recruit, the depth they have, they are the best defensive program. Whether they're down to down every single year, the best defense, I don't know. They're not as good as last year, but they're very good. Nathan, it was a clinic. Five of those first eight drives, And I thought the three drives that weren't touchdowns in the first eight, they were like very specific, like a a thing happened on one play that kind of kept them from being perfect. And then in the last one, two, three, four, five drives, Georgia started doing a little bit more. And I think you could see the combination of the injuries to Ohio State and sort of how Georgia started attacking the Buckeyes. They weren't as perfect. What did you think of Ohio State's offense at its best in the Peach Bowl? Yeah, at its best. That's exactly what people expect Ohio State to be. I I thought it was from everything from C.J. Stroud and sort of his soft feet in the pocket, the awareness that he had and uh, ability to let plays develop and make the right decisions there to obviously what he used to do, what he was doing with his feet later. But um, the connection that he had with Marvin Harrison Jr., sort of that uh, innate at times connection that they have and, and how much they miss that later in the game. But, I mean, early on at its best, this was everything was clicking 
um, in exactly the way that you think Ohio State's offense is supposed to click. It was what didn't happen in the second half of the Michigan game. Ohio State had to be a lot of the things that it wasn't against Michigan in order to have any chance to beat Georgia. And it actually did a lot of those things. That I think it got people's hopes up, Stephen, because you watched this Ohio State defense and then those first eight drives, the first half and the first drive of the second half. It's like, well, I don't know. Georgia can't stop them. Ohio State's going to win. I don't know. Ohio State might score 60. I don't know what Georgia's going to do. And and I don't I don't think that was an incorrect assumption at that time because CJ was so composed and the throws this is at its heart. It looked so easy. We know it's not. It's Georgia. But you look at things and it's like, "Oh, there's a 22-yard completion to Mecca Buka. What happened there? I don't know. He was just running sideways across the field, four yards in front of the defender, and CJ hit him in stride and he caught it. Looks easy. Because they were blocking it. They were calling it. They were seeing it. They were running it. And they were completing it, Stephen. And that's the peak. That's the peak that every every Ohio State fan had to come down from. Because that's 35 points in the first eight drives. And also feeling at that, I felt like at that point, Stephen, the only thing that was going to stop Ohio State was itself. Now, I don't think that turned out to be true in the last five drives of the game. I do think Georgia act, did did things to Ohio State. It wasn't just that Ohio State fell apart. But there was a, a moment there, Stephen, where I sort of just thought like, well, good offense but beats good defense. What time are we getting to L.A.? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I thought I thought this is the best game Ryan Day's called in two years. I thought he was purposeful with everything he did. It didn't feel like he was wasting play calls. Even the pass to Joe Royer felt purposeful because now Joe Royer's in the game, and now he's out there. This is a guy who hadn't played all year, and when you lose Kate Stover, you got to make sure guys feel like they're out there. So even if it's just like tossing them a nine-yard throw for a bone, I loved it. Um, there were a lot of times where they'd bring guys in motion. They brought Emeka Ibuka in motion so many times where I think I looked at Joey Kaufman from dispatch who was sitting to the right of me, and I went, one of these times they're going to hand that ball off to Emeka Ibuka because they're doing it so much, and then maybe like six or seven plays later they handed it off to Emeka. Everything had a purpose. It didn't feel like we were still in the regular season where they were running up the middle on second and nine because they're trying to see if they can do it. It was very purposeful. And so it starts there with Ryan Day. And then, I mean, CJ's child made a lot of things look easy. Uh, Marvin Harrison made a lot of things look easy. And when Marvin Harrison and CJ's child get going, it unlocks everybody else. Because across the board, I mean, Emeka Buka had 100 yards. Julian Fleming, I think this is the best game he's played in as well. Um, getting those two established first set the tone. I was tracking first downs, and I think I, I lost track. But they basically ran it and passed it about equally on first down. Nathan and I that I thought was huge as as Steven's saying there weren't wasted plays there weren't a lot of like oh it feels like well it's first down we better run it they did some play action stuff on first down they rolled CJ out of the pocket on first down and it is something that we have talked about on this podcast a lot during the course of this season when the run game has been ineffective which is just stop and if at times that felt hyperbolic, this to me, Nathan, was what that was. It felt like that. Now, I know they still handed it off, and CJ ran more than they ever ran. So you look at the run-pass numbers, and and maybe it's not as out of balance as you would think. But 
it was it was clearly a passing game and just enough running to keep them honest. And I thought it was the exact right mix. And I thought they were really effective throwing the ball on first down sometimes. If they were just bang, bang, bang without without giving plays away. And there were times, as Steven just said, there were times during the course of the 12-game regular season where you could almost feel them giving plays away in pursuit of something that I think we thought they were never going to get to. And I don't think they ever did get to, mostly because of injuries, or at least in decent part because of injuries. So, Nathan, I thought that approach of running just enough but not really trying to rely on the run was it was what I sort of had been waiting for all year, and then they did it. There weren't a lot of plays in this game where you where they ran one and then you sat there and thought, why did they think that was going to work? And that happens more than it should. It has happened more than it should over the second half of this season, and it was happening in the Michigan game in in uh, paralyzing ways for this offense sometimes. And we obviously debated coming into the game how much they were going to really need to run the ball. And they finished with, what you know, 32 uh, carries. But and how many sacks does that include? Because it's it, whatever sacks Georgia had. Four, was four, four sacks. So now you're down to mm-hmm. 28. And then you take off what were just the scrambles for Stroud, which really should go into the passing game. That's something else you know, we've talked about. Since going back to before the year, right, was like what what actually constitutes a run play or a pass play. That's really more part of the passing game. So the run game was, I don't know, it was probably in reality more like a two to one margin for the passing game, right? No, I think, I mean, I think, and like CJ had the one little keeper that didn't work, but you think about like, I just think about like running back handoffs, yes. right? That's really what I think about. Right. So they had 17 running back handoffs out of 65 plays. So I'll, I'll, I'll take that ratio. Even like, cause even a Mecca, like the two handoffs to a Mecca, I don't really, that's like a wrinkle to me. That's not a trick play by any means, yep. but it's not the same thing as ramming a tailback between the tackles for two yards. So I, I think 17 out of 65 is right, right where I want them to be every single game. And I get you can't be there every single game. That's 26%. We had said like throw it 70 or 75% of the time. They, they handed to running backs 26% of the time. So, okay, great. Love it. Perfect. And and I will say Love. this. That's one of these things. Just, I had a conversation in the middle of the season about this with somebody. And um, it was definitely not something you would write at that moment. And, and it was conveyed that, well, when it's winning time, we'll probably do that. But we have to put the run game on film until then. And like the all like, what are you doing? Why are you, why do you bother with this? It's like, now listen, you could say, well, it didn't help you beat Michigan, which is a great point, right? You didn't get to it against Michigan enough in a way to do it. But like this version of the offense, they weren't blind to it. They were not blind to it, but they in, whether that's pursuit of what the team needs, what the running backs need, what the offensive line needs, because offensive linemen love to run it. It's hard to be backpedaling and playing defense all the time. Sometimes it's fun to be going forward and trying to, you know, drive somebody into the ground. So for a lot of different reasons, I think there were moments, at least in the first 11, Stephen, when if we were saying like, what are you doing? They were saying, we know, we know, we know, we know, we know, we know. We're trying something out but we're not going to run it 50-50 against Georgia if we have to. We know that right now. We know that in October. 
So it's not an excuse, but I think what they got to, Stephen, maybe we would have say said, why didn't you see that earlier? Right? Why didn't you why didn't you do that before? <sighs> and in the end, I think that's a reasonable critique. Why didn't you do it before? But I don't think there was much doubt that given the circumstances of, the, of this season with the injuries at running back, that they were going to get to this when they needed to on the biggest stage, especially indoors. But honestly, even if the entire health running back room would have stayed healthy all year, I still would have probably gotten to this game and been like, throw it 80% of the time. So it's not, this is not a talent. The conversation. I still would have gotten here. Travion Henderson is great, and maybe there, and we can get there when we get there. But there are some runs where I felt like they really missed Travion just because of his explosive ability. But I still would have been like, "You, CJ, and these wide receivers." I don't disagree that they have to put the run game on film during the season. And Ohio State's one of those teams where there's eight games on your schedule every year where you can you're practicing on Saturday in front of the world. Basically, I think my bigger issue. It may be fans' bigger issue, if I can speak for them for a little bit, is when you're doing it against Penn State and Michigan, or and even Wisconsin to our lower degree, or even the game one against – when you're doing it in games where it feels like you still might lose, that's when I think fans get a little uppity about it. It's like, can we just win the game so we can get the backups out there and then you can work on whatever you want to work on? But I I, I, I do understand that they were probably going to get here anyway. And, I, but the, and the proof is in the pudding. I mean, C.J. Stroud – he had two streaks of seven touchdowns, I mean, seven completions. He was eight for nine at the end of the second quarter. He didn't have back-to-back incompletions until late in the third quarter of that game. It was it, it was just – it was very night and day from what we saw from this team the first 12 weeks. So let's finish the run game conversation here because it's only 26% of the offense and it probably should be 12% <laughs> of the podcast. The Xavier Johnson – like the Xavier Johnson is our running back for a couple series in the middle of the game is like fascinating. And again, I the night when I watched the film with the coaches, watching that practice film, Xavier Johnson was playing running back for part of that practice, and Xavier Johnson hit the right hole every time. It's like, okay, well, how's this post this play supposed to go? It's like, oh, you mean exactly right, exactly that? Like Xavier Johnson just did the exact right thing because it looks like there's a hole outside, but it's not actually there. And the hole is that is about to open inside. If you know that it's there and you believe in your heart that it's going to be there, it's going to be there. And Xavier Johnson hit it every time. And I walked out of that session thinking like, should Xavier Johnson carry the ball 20 times a game? Like he just keeps doing the right thing again and again and again. And it doesn't mean that the other guys were doing the wrong thing all the time. But Nathan, he is an excellent football player. And the touchdown pass to Xavier Johnson, I think I had my head down. I didn't realize he was lined up in the backfield. And it's he's both. He's yep. Curtis Samuel Light. Yep, you yep. get a matchup. They did a good job getting matchups. Just like we talked about, I think you mentioned this, Nathan, like matchups, right? We thought, oh, George's offense did a good job getting guys matched up. They line up Xavier Johnson in the backfield, then have him run a receiver route on a linebacker, and it leads to a two-minute drill touchdown, Nathan. I know you wanted to talk about that. That is good play calling, but it also, I think, requires the specificity of skill set that exists on this team only within the heart and mind and soul and body of Xavier Johnson. You can't run that route with Mayan Williams. I don't think you can run it with Chip Trainum. I don't think you can run it with Dallin Hayden. Maybe you could run it with Trevon Henderson. I know Maybe. you can run it with. 
Who? Number 11 when they were running these types of plays in the Rose Bowl last year. Line up Jackson in the backfield and run that kind of thing. But but also, but you almost get yep, more bang me... for the buck out of this because you were never going to play Jackson Smith and Jenkins back and hand back. the ball yeah. six times. Like Xavier Johnson had been yeah, the actual fair. running back for a couple series by that point. So Nathan, that matchup Mm-mm. and that skill set, man, Xavier Johnson, I don't know what to, I don't know what to think about this guy. I don't know what to do. I'm not so sure that he shouldn't be like the third most important player on the offense next year. I am so wrapped in a circle about the unique skills and incredible football acumen and skill of Xavier Johnson. I don't even know what to think about it, but my gosh, that play in particular was beautiful. And when they handed it to him, Nathan, he also ran it pretty well. I think what you're probably struggling with is what I think the Ohio State coaching staff probably struggles with, which is if the guys with a higher ceiling would do the right thing, make the right moves with the regularity that Xavier Johnson does, wow, wouldn't you really be cooking with something at that point, right? But that wasn't what was happening part of a lot, large part of this year because of injuries, because of other things. And that's what I came out of this game. There was a lot of dichotomies. There's a lot of like, uh, uh, this is true, but then also this. And I think you come out of a game like this with a great appreciation for Xavier Johnson, who we already had an appreciation for him. As I said on uh, another pod, like going back to the the Notre Dame game, like catching that touchdown pass and coming out and getting a big tackle on special teams, like right after that, that's like one of the great football moments of the season for Ohio State. Like those back-to-back plays, like there aren't a lot of guys on a roster who do those sorts of things. And the guys who we have seen do that tend to end up in, you know, the NFL and things like that. So I think there needs to be a great appreciation for Xavier Johnson, but I also think it might be true that getting the maximum, getting every last drop out of Xavier Johnson and Mitch Rossi and Joe Royer may not put you over the top against Georgia. But I also don't want to lump Xavier Johnson with Mitch Rossi and Joe Royer because because Mitch Rossi and Joe Royer are limited. That's Xavier fair. Johnson, I don't think, fair. is limited. His now he's a former walk-on, but I think yeah. his his ceiling he can hang. In a game like this, are you going to win a national championship if he's your number one option? If he is Curtis Samuel, if he's the whole offense like Curtis Samuel was in 2016 when he was simultaneously their best receiver and best running back? No. If you're trying to do that with Xavier Johnson, but I think he can have a real role on a winning team. So I just, he's so good. He's such a good, he's such a good football player. Uh, So I want to make sure we talk about how they handled Jalen Carter. I want to talk about the offensive line. We need to talk about the Marvin Harrison Jr. injury and how that affected things and the Cade Stover injury. But let's talk about C.J. Stroud, and we'll do it next on Buckeye Talk. Doug Maurice, Nathan Baird, Stephen Means. If you'll be a tech subscriber, you know the deal. 614-350-3315, and we hope you're reading cleveland.com slash OSU. There were moments in this game, Stephen, where I just, on the rewatch, was just like shouting at the screen, like, that's perfect! Like, the, the way he moved in the pocket the way he knew where to go with the ball. I, it's a complicated career that he has had, but that was an undeniably outstanding quarterback performance that just was a guy completely in control of the moment. It doesn't made that mean that he made the perfect play on every single play. Cause by the way, he's playing the best defense in the country and that's impossible to do. But, man, especially those first eight drives, Stephen, when it was five touchdowns, it, it it was one of those things that, to me, is the thing that we went back to that we've always talked about with CJ. It's like when you have a, a great 
NFL quarterback whose mind is just working in a way that he knows what's going to happen before it happens, and then he knows he's going to be able to get the ball there. And you just saw a guy that was unrattled, completely ready for the moment, and then like basically we at times this year, Stephen, eh, like oh, that was a little loose, little loose throw by CJ. Oh man, that he's lucky that one didn't get picked. I don't think he threw a ball like that in this game mm. where you would have said like, there was like maybe a miscommunication. He thought a guy was going to go out when he went in. There were a couple drops by the receivers. I don't think CJ made a bad decision in this game. And he made a ton of good ones. One thing I like about this stat broadcast is how much they can break down stuff. They have his passes left, right, back, all that stuff. At There's, there's, when he's throwing the screen passes at the line of scrimmage, he was five for five for 25 yards. Then short passing, that's where he struggled. I thought, you know, Georgia was pretty decent at the line of scrimmage when they were trying to throw some of the short stuff, but also there were some drops. He was only one of four for eight yards. And then uh, mid range, which is where we have seen him continue to, to eat on teams, T- 10 of 18 for 136 yards. But the most impressive one was the deep ball. Seven of eight for 179 yards. And there's so much of that I felt like was out of the pocket was him improvising, whether it was both of uh, Marvin Harrison's touchdown passes. There were some other situations where he did it for as well. This felt the most in control I'd seen CJ Stroud against a competent opponent. Because typically when you see him this much in rhythm and this much feeling himself, it's against Michigan State when the receivers are five yards open because Michigan State's secondary sucks. This is against one of the best defenses in in college football, maybe the best in college football. And I felt that same composure from him, whether he was being rattled or not. Yeah, I think the two touchdowns to Marvin you point out, one, this is the second touchdown of the game where he's directing the traffic in the end zone, rolling right and finding that. And then the third touchdown of the game where he sheds the sack from the giant defensive lineman who grabs his jersey and pulls it and gets out of it and then finds Marvin in the corner of, en- of the end zone. And that's the one where Ryan Day was like having like, like sh- his body was shaking on the field because he loved that. One of those, mm-hmm. right? The, the first one is like completely in control, directing traffic. The third one is sort of like escaping for your life and refusing to go down. And mm-hmm. both of them show the best of what an improvisational quarterback can be. But I also didn't think he bailed. There was in particular one where I can't remember what the throw was. I think it was like a sideline throw. Jalen Carter just threw the offensive lineman to the side and got immediate pressure up the middle. And CJ just stepped to the side, stayed in the pocket, and made the throw. And so he wasn't, when he had to get out of there, he got out, Nathan. But he wasn't looking to get out at the first sign of any kind of pressure. And we'll get into some of the pressure numbers from Georgia as we talk about the offensive line, but that was a big part of it too. I I didn't think looking at the numbers from PFF, Georgia got more pressure than I thought because it felt like most of the time CJ handled it. Like as I, when I finished, when I left Mercedes Benz stadium, I don't think I would have said to myself, Oh my gosh, they were just like in his face all night. And they did have the four sacks. We'll talk about those. But I think they kind of were in his face, and he just handled a lot of the time, whether it was staying in or getting out. And I think, again, he made the right read most of the time. It was the presence that you want from a guy at the end of his second year as a starter. And I thought that you you bring up a good point that, you know, when that pocket starts to close, that guy with his experience shouldn't be panicking. And it still felt like it still felt like this is my pocket. 
<clears throat> like that's what CJ Stroud was saying. Like I am in control of this until the last possible moment, you know, when it's when, when, when you have to, when the dam is broken and you have to leave. But he just felt in authority the whole time in, in that, in that situation. And I agree with what kind of what Steven was saying. Like, I don't know if there was a game this season where I felt like he was in control this way. I thought there were games last season, Michigan state, even the Utah game where he was in control to this level, but this is a different, I mean, it's a different stakes. It's a different level of opponent, obviously, certainly than Michigan state was. And even Utah last year, like to, to pull this out at this moment was a, a real, it was the shot he needed, right? Like, you know, there was talk of what his legacy is and was, and it's complicated and, and whatever, but this is the walk-off for him to, to have a game like this with both his arm and his legs. And uh, I thought it was pretty close to perfect. So these are the, this is the number that surprised me a little bit, again, from my interpretation of like how it felt afterward to what the stats showed. PFF has a, a stat where they just, it's a defensive pressure. It's how many times in a game did the defense get pressure on the quarterback? Here's CJ this season, the number of pressures he faced. And again, the number of dropbacks vary. Notre Dame seven, Arkansas State three, Toledo three, Wisconsin six, Rutgers six, Michigan State six, Iowa 10, Penn State seven, Northwestern six, Indiana four, Maryland 12, Michigan 10, Georgia 19, 19, 19, 19 pressures in a game on 44 dropbacks. That's practically half the time. Nathan, that's a lot. That is a tremendous amount of times that you are pressured. And I didn't think that. If you would have said he had 44 dropbacks, how many times was he pressured? I might have said mm, 11. I don't know. Or does 19, are you just like, oh, no, 19. That sounds right. Yeah, no, that sounds high. Even after the rewatch, I don't know that I was like recognizing that it was quite that much. Because in 19 out of uh, 34 attempts plus his scrambles, like that's that's a huge percentage of the pass so plays, 44, right? Like that's like 44 dropbacks. Yeah, 40, 44 dropbacks. Yeah, yeah. For, right. the, for the record here, the only game in his career that's higher than that was the Michigan game last year where they didn't touch him was eating him alive. What was the numbers right, on that? There you go. So, I mean, that's it's <laughs> twenty five. Okay. And, and he had a nineteen or against Nebraska that last year too. And Nebraska was a very weird game for yeah. him, as we recall. Like that was a game there was no Garrett Wilson, and that it's still a surprising number. But but I think it says something to um, him at this stage that you don't feel it. You didn't feel that as much watching the game because of the way he handles it. Yeah, so I thought it was uh, it was great composure by him. I actually thought the offensive line played pretty well. So let's talk about them now. And we can double back on CJ at the end when we put a capstone on this. I thought the offensive line handling Jalen Carter and the front three or front four did a pretty good job. Dewan Jones was helping on Jalen Carter a decent percentage of the time. There was a play when CJ needed time on a late on a deep developing route where Matt Jones just stood in and just fought Jalen Carter to a draw. Jalen Carter dropped a spin move on him in the middle of the play, and Matt Jones stayed right on him. I was like, man, there was a play where Luke Whipler stood up Jalen Carter. The third and 16 from Ohio State's own end zone, 
when CJ just missed Marvin over the middle. Luke Whipler and Matt Jones did like a one and three quarters block on Jalen Carter, and Jalen Carter wound up on the ground in the end zone with Luke Whipler on top of him. Steven, I don't know. I thought I thought they did a good job. Now, there's some blitzes and some late rushers, which we talked about before the game. These late rushers from Georgia where they look like they're going to have four or five-man pressure, then they drop off, or they, they have three initially, then there's a late rusher coming through a lane. That happened late in the game especially. But and even there was a mm. there was a critical drive on one of the drives that didn't work in the first eight, Stephen, where they brought they blocked Jalen Carter pretty well, and then he tipped the pass because like he didn't get any penetration. Yeah. So then his, his his ring finger was in the passing lane, and if he hadn't tipped it, it would have been a pass interference call uh, on them hitting Joe Royer early. But I did not think there were a couple times when Jalen Carter busted in free right away. It, two that stood out. But he didn't get CJ down either time. And I saw, so I thought in the end, again, the stats for Jalen Carter are pretty good, but I did not think Jalen Carter ruined Ohio State's offense, which maybe you thought was a possibility heading into the game. Yeah, I thought outside of Paris just getting beat on the one sack, the other three sacks were more just, and most of these pressures were the late blitzing. And I don't know if that's the offensive line's fault or if it's CJ's fault. Who, because in those situations, if Luke Whip was pointed out, if CJ's pointed out, CJ has final say at the end of the day in the, in the protections. And so I don't know if I thought the offensive line had a very good day and Georgia did some things that Georgia typically does. And is it on CJ to know? Cause there's one blitz where I think they're deep in their own red zone and CJ just gets popped from behind. I mean, that's just a delayed blitz that CJ didn't pick up. I don't know if I would blame that on Donovan ja- Jackson and Paris Johnson for not picking that up. So I, no, I got the person to blame for that. I got the person to blame for that. Okay. Well, okay. well, well, well other, other than that, I thought the offensive line was pretty, was pretty quality. No, like, yeah, the blitzes, some of the, they got, I thought the last five drives, there's some confusion that's happening. There's various parts of the, where they don't pick up a mm-hmm. guy. The heads up. Are you getting beat? If you look at Jalen Carter's PFF grades, he graded out at 73.4 for that game. That was his lowest game, one, two, three, four, five. In the last six against Tennessee was a 92. Against Mississippi State, he was a 91. In the SEC championship game against LSU, he was a 90. Nathan, like I just – he did have five pressures on 52 snaps. According to PFF, that was his second best of the year. And I But, like, I think more often than not, Nathan, I thought Ohio State handled him. Well, I think they did – I thought you could see plays where there was a – one play where Jalen Carter was over the left guard and on the snap, Dewan Jones from right tackle went after him like a heat sinking missile. That was like, I'm going to get him that I did think they had Dewan targeting him at times. We're making sure we're going to help there. Maybe it's in the blocking scheme anyway, but when you have a month to plan, I think you can also say, Hey, we're going to adjust some things here and try to get our big body on their big body as much as we can. But again, I thought the inside guys handled it pretty well most of the time i think you know that guy's that guy might be a top five draft pick nathan and he didn't take over the game and i think that mattered no he's quiet and for a guy that you're thinking that they're touting might be the number one overall pick in this draft or or would be if it wasn't for or the number one non-quarterback i guess you would say um you expect more noise you expect it to be a loud presence and i i thought a lot of it was it was scheme but it was also the guys in the middle um, and it, you know, we, we asked them about it all 
several times. I'm sure Luke Whipler and, and Matt Jones and Donovan Jackson were, were tired of hearing us ask about Jalen Carter, but there was a reason why, because he is just that kind of a presence. And I thought just sometimes it was just those guys neutralizing him heads up too. There had to be a lot of double teams and, and that's what those guys are, are built to do. But uh, I, I just thought that it was one of the aspects of this game where you, if coming into this game, if you had guessed or predicted, well, here's where Georgia could really maybe wreck Ohio State. Here's where it could go wrong. Uh, Ohio State really neutralized that. Okay, so Jalen Carter didn't kill him. And I thought, for the most part, the Ohio State receivers did work against the corners. Right, and that maybe wasn't a shock. We thought that might happen, but Keely Ringo is going to be a first-round draft pick. You know, I we've expressed our admiration for Chris Smith, the safety, true freshman Malachi Starks had a terrible PFF grade in this game. He's a great young talent, but didn't do anything. So if you handle the defensive tackle that everybody's worried about, Stephen, and then I thought, who won, Ohio State receivers or Georgia corners? It's not a contest, right? No. It can't be a contest when all three of those guys have 70-plus shards in the game, and it feels like they're just kind of building on each other, especially when the main one for pretty much the entire – has 100 yards in the end of the first half. It was – I was I was very intrigued by the Keely Ringo-Marvin Harrison line, uh, matchup. I thought Joey Porter did a better job on Marvin Harrison than Keely Ringo did. But if I had to compare those two first-round corners and how they did against Ohio State's best receiver, I thought even if Joy Porter, even if Marvin Harrison had more catches in the Penn State game, I still think Joy Porter did a better job of forcing Marvin Harrison to fight for everything he got. While with this game, it felt like, and some of this is just when things go a little bit more freestyle, you know, corner, it can get harder to cover, but it felt like the moment that C.J. Stroud maybe had to improvise, Marvin Harrison had won that matchup already because he was just better at, you know, getting open a second time. Yeah, I mean, it's the the, the defensive grades for the Georgia secondary, they're not great all year, but they are not great here. Keely Ringo, 61.2 on PFF. Chris Smith, the safety, 67.5. Malachi Starks, 46.2. That's really low and a terrible coverage grade. Kamari Lasseter, who's the opposite corner of Ringo, they picked on him early, Nathan. It felt like they were trying to get Marvin matched up on him sometimes, 50.2. And again, th those corners don't move. You know where they're going to be. So they could take opportunities to say, well, who do we want Marvin to go against here? And Georgia wasn't going to try to be tricky with that. And then Marvin was toasting Kamari Lasseter early. But again, not that... Not that we thought that Georgia secondary would shut Ohio State down. We thought you got to throw you got to throw on Georgia to win, and they did. But it's like they handled Jalen Carter, they handled the secondary. So now we're we're working our way, Nathan, toward. So then, what didn't they do? Why didn't they win? But I think the secondary part of it went about as we expected, right? Well, it's why we people had theorized that Ohio State should throw the ball more and should be like more passing first because you're going to have a plus matchup with C.J. Stroud and this receiving core, and or at least this receiving core they had in the first half or through the first three quarters, you're going to have a plus matchup against basically any team you play. Like, once you, once you get down to even, like, the second and third receivers, like, you usually are going to have a significant advantage over a lot of teams you're playing when you're getting down to their second and third DBs. So when this offense was at its full strength, which it wasn't for all of this game, but when it is... Um, it should have that advantage. And, and I thought that that played out almost exactly as we would have expected um, with, with the, um, 
with the attention of Ohio State was paying that. What I think is where they did get away from it a little bit, and and I'm not even sure if I can diagnose exactly what has happened, but you know Marvin Harrison had a great like first 20 minutes, and then I think he was targeted maybe once between there and when he had the injury play at the back of the end zone. Like it yeah. became like Ohio State was having a lot harder time getting the ball to him in particular. I, I think with, I. I don't know if it was necessarily a negative though. I think there was a point where ESPN had like a stat where it was like 1058 left in the second quarter was when his last catch was. I think Georgia just sold out on, okay, we can't let 18 beat us the rest of the night. But the yeah. thing you saw instead of that was, okay, Marvin's not getting the ball. Now you saw Mecca and Julian start to come alive in the passing game because the first quarter or so it was just kind of the Marvin Harrison CJ Child show. And we, we talked about that in the post game too, about how that was like an apparent point of the game where, where that, and, 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 uh, Julian Fleming cashes my prop bet. Yeah. That was yeah. an easy one. That was like 37 and a half yards. He had that. He might have had that. Half Yours half. was easy. Mine was 277. <laughs> that was <laughs> CJ had that at midway through the second quarter. Yeah. Yours were easy. I had Mayan Williams under 66 and a half. For eight <laughs> yards. <laughs> yes. let, let me say this though and i think we did no no this in the postgame podcast he wasn't himself there's not another back on this roster that scores the touchdown that mayan williams scored because it was not there mm-hmm. it was a two-yard touchdown run that he had to run through about 1200 pounds of defender to get into the end zone on and it was a brief flash of Mayan Williams at his best. And by the way, Nathan, he's coming back. That's our little bit of tidbit of news on this Thursday as we record this, right? That they're going to get that Mayan Williams back. And certainly when we saw the best of Mayan Williams, he can help this team. Maybe it doesn't mean he's a 20 carry a game back, but he can help this team. And I thought that touchdown run against Georgia was tremendous. Yeah, no, I thought that was it, it was the prototypical Mayan Williams moment in some ways. And listen, he finishes the year third among all Big Ten players in yards per carry and third in rushing touchdowns. And for a guy who was um, a, a makeup call a little bit, like, you know, a, 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 a fill in for the other misses that they had in that 2020 class, he has exceeded expectations. And you're right, like him coming back in 2023, along with Henderson coming back in 2023, along with the promise of, of some of those younger guys, or, or I guess Evan Pryor isn't really a younger guy anymore, but if he's a healthy guy next year, I mean, that, that starts to become a pretty full room, although then there are some concerns for 2024, depending on what attrition could still be hanging out. But as far as for the 2023 backfield, assuming good health for those top two guys, it's a huge help for whichever guy is the opening day quarterback out of out of um McCord and Brown. They did a lot of good stuff. They didn't win. Why? We'll run through every drive next on Buckeye Talk. All right. So I said five of the first eight drives. Perfect. The first drive of the game ends because of a sack on third and seven, Stephen. And it is that late blitzer that we talked about. You can see Whipler and uh, Jones, Matthew Jones, go to block the same guy, which leaves a hole right up the middle, and CJ just eats it. And it's like, and that's it. And that was a little bit of a sign of things to come, what happened later in the game. But I think immediately after that, they learned from it. But that was, that late rusher just ate that drive on third and seven, Stephen, and that was it. It killed it. 
Yeah, and I think they sent a lot more than the. It was. I think Ohio State did a good job adjusting to it after that, until it got to a point where they were kind of late in the game, and then like Georgia's just kind of sending guys and sending guys, and sending guys because they have to throw the ball in that situation. But that that was almost a line in the sand situation of like, all right, well if we know Ohio State has to throw the ball to win this game, but if Georgia's going to do this, if this is how they're going to combat that, then. This is how they're going to be. Well, what it ended up being for the first three quarters where CJ Stroud's picking Georgia apart, or he's going to get sacked seven times tonight and we're going to get a repeat of the Michigan game because they're sending blitzers and CJ Stroud never figures it out. That's the matchup there of like, it's almost a CJ Stroud versus Georgia's defensive coordinator at that point. And who, how many more times could they win? It felt like CJ Stroud was winning more often than not in the first half after that initial drive. But you definitely could have been worried after that first drive of like, uh oh. There, yeah, this is somebody's number here. So then, second drive, perfect touchdown. Third drive, perfect touchdown. Fourth drive, perfect touchdown. We've given, I think, the flowers to everybody. That the again, the the play that when CJ shook the sack and found Marvin for for the third touchdown, and Ryan Day like lost control of himself. That is a, a tremendous play. So that's the first four drives. The fifth drive, Nathan. This is tough because the fifth drive died because of your two All Americans. On second down, C.J. hits Marvin Harrison in the hands on a crossing route, and he drops it. And if he catches it, yep. it's a first down at least and maybe more, which sets up a third down where Paris Johnson just gets beat with a with a rush. Mm-hmm. And Chip Trainum is there. He's the back on that play, and he's there to help. And I, you can see him. He looks at it, Nathan, and he's almost like, oh, no, Paris has this. It's good. And he leaves, and then Paris gets beat, and it's a sack. So if Mar- they are – Still bang, bang, bang in this rhythm at this point. And CJ makes the right read, hits the star of the game, and Marvin dropped it. And it's listen, do you do you drop do you drop things sometimes? Yes. But I was asking, you know, I was like very in, intrigued at parts of the of this season by like, not only do these guys make spectacular plays, but they don't do that much. Those things where it's like, well, there's 12 years. Uh and that was one of those, Nathan. It was like, oh, here's another for uh. And that was tough. And it doesn't, I mean, he was awesome. He also kind of had a drop in the corner of the end zone that didn't hurt him. Nobody's perfect. But uh, Nathan, like if you're going back, I might, I might put that of like, if we're making a list of like the five plays, because there's so many plays that stand out in this game. That's a, that's a little under the radar play, Nathan, because if you catch it and convert it, you stay right on track. And instead one play later, it leads to their first punt. No, their second punt. Yeah, you know, I was at Marvin Harrison's locker talking to him after the game, and, uh, you know, he was – we haven't got to the reason why he wasn't at the end of this game yet, but he was, you know, very lucid in talking about everything that happened in the game with a pretty with pretty clear thoughts, I think. Um, but he said um, – I'm trying to get to the exact quote um, – the coaches trusted me to make plays, and I don't think I made enough plays. I was in the game trying to help this team win. I think I didn't perform my best today, but I'll just go back to the drawing board next year and try to get better. And I asked, are you talking about the drops? And he said yes. And so, I mean, it's, mm. he, he was aware that there were opportunities there. Um, that was one. There was another later in this game that I think anyone would just call a flat drop. And as, it, just a reminder that as – as outstanding as a player is and, and how much they needed him on the field at the end of this game, we can talk about, but it's the, the margin for error in a game like this is non-existent. It's crazy. Cause like we had spent 
I mean, it was a big deal that Marvin Harrison before the Michigan game hadn't dropped a single pass. It was a big deal that Paris Johnson had never given up a sack. And since then, they've both had some moments where they've dropped and given up sacks over the last two games. But I thought the, the drop in the end zone, even if they still ended up scoring, that was a, I think that was the biggest one of the bunch just because that play is such a routine play in the red zone for this passing attack where it's just basically a sprint out and, for a wide receiver and a quarterback and you hit it, Ben, it's just kind of, we've seen Chris Olave do it. That's the play that Cam Babb scored his touchdown on. It was such a routine play for him to drop it in that situation was kind of an interesting thing to see because the stuff that's happened in the middle of the field, stuff like that happens, but dropping it in the, in the red zone, we just hadn't seen that from Marvin up until that point. For a guy who we'd all been on, on key alert for, this is a red zone threat. This is a red zone threat. So you look at that after three touchdown drives, it's like, oh, what went wrong? It's like nothing changed for them. It's just their their two best offensive players, or two of the three best, just had bad plays, and it led to a punt. So then the sixth drive, Nathan, they get in a third and one, and they run Dallin Hayden, and, and it's not good. It's not good. There's a there's sort of a, a linebacker who, again, is coming late and sort of beats Donovan Jackson and gets his arms on Dallin Hayden and stops him short. And then they go for it on fourth down and they run CJ and it's a good play call. And it's clearly there and an incredibly sloppy penalty by Mitch Rossi to come in motion and just be moving forward at the snap for no reason. And so the third down play call, I think is on Ryan day. I didn't like that play call. They didn't execute it. And it's one of these things. Again, they had some other third, there was a third down early in the game where they hit a slant to a Mecca and it was super easy. It was like, ah. Oh. There's your third down. That's how you do it. And then we went back to the thing we talked about all off season. What's your third and one play? And in that moment, Nathan, on that third and one, they just rammed Dallin Hayden up the middle and got stuffed. But then they went for it on fourth and it worked. And Mitch Rossi had a re just an inexcusably sloppy penalty. He knows he's moving forward at the snap. I, I couldn't believe he did it. And then it leads to a punt. So that is a, third and one I didn't like and then just a penalty that kills you but again it's like what what happened there what did Georgia do there and it's like well without the bad penalty no. it wasn't anything Georgia did right so quick poll who did Ohio State miss more in this game when they after they left Marvin Harrison Jr. or Cade Stover Cade Stover because I can tell there's, you like yep there's two more or three other huge yeah. moments Oh my, yeah, um, and it's not—it's not just Mitch Rossi. There was a, a huge moment at the end of this game, um, the last offensive play of this game for yes. Ohio State that involved uh, mm -hmm. pressure coming off of a tight end. And I'm not, you know, calling those guys out. I'm just saying that, that Cade Stover, I think, makes some of those plays. There was another play where pressure came from uh, off the left side, and we talked about it at the moment it happened, Doug. Right? You remember this about like, well, that probably gets well, chipped we're gonna get by to that. Cade Stover. We're going to get to that in one second. So one second. Yeah. So. So, yes, yeah, so just saying that, like, uh, I, I'm not trying to throw these other guys under the bus, but there's a reason Cade Stover was starting. There's a reason Cade Stover had elevated himself to being considered, you know, Chris or Kirby Smart, who, who knows tight ends, by the way. Like, Kirby Smart's got some good tight ends. Kirby Smart uh, went kind of over the top talking about Cade Stover earlier in the week, mm -hmm. how he thought he was one of the best tight ends in the country and how much he respected him. And huge absence in this game. Huge absence. And again, on this staff, though, to develop that position because they have not recruited that position well. Yep. And Mitch yep. Rossi is really not a tight end. He's like an H-back, fullback, oh. wrinkle, 
offset guy. He's not really a pure tight end. And then you wind up asking him to do that because he's kind of your backup tight end also because the guys underneath Cade Stover have not been recruited or developed at the level of you that you expect for any position at Ohio State. So that came back. You shouldn't be one deep at a position. And at tight end this year, they were one deep. And that showed up at the worst possible time. So the reason I stopped you, Nathan, on that, that sixth, that sixth drive ends because of that. Seventh drive, last drive of the half, touchdown, two-minute drill to perfection, touchdown to Xavier Johnson, perfect. First drive of the second half, touchdown, perfect. Eight drives, five perfect drives. Ninth drive, second down, they get a blitz from Javon Bullard, the slot corner. Mitch Rossi is the tight end on the end of the line, Nathan. It's exactly the play you were talking about that we were talking about in the press box. And Kirk Herbstreit talked about on the game. Mitch Rossi releases like right past Javon Bullard and does nothing with him. And CJ takes the sack. And it certainly looks like, Nathan, there's an opportunity for that tight end on that end of the line to at least do something if a guy's blitzing right past him. They take a sack there. And then um, we get to the third and 16 where CJ just misses Marvin over the middle, which would have been a spectacular completion in between defenders. But really, Nathan, that drive dies because of the sack on second down. Yeah, I think there was like a whisper of contact there. Like it wasn't it wasn't a chip. It was like a crumb. It was like what's left at the bottom of the Dorito bag. It wasn't a full wasn't a full chip. But that that one jumped out to me in real time as just being um, an obvious um, an obvious thing. And I, I think this is where uh, the guy who has repped that in real at real game speed against real competition uh, dozens and dozens and dozens hundreds of times now. Uh, has just a little bit more presence of mind. He isn't probably thinking um, as much with two minds at that point. That's the whole. That's the whole point of having like starter caliber guys is that they can process everything they need to do there. That it's not just running the route. It's that you have to run the route in this really precise way to do this other job. Whereas maybe the backup who doesn't run that many routes and isn't as used to the situation, maybe his brain is thinking too much about the other thing. It's obviously speculation on my part, but it's a little bit what you could see playing out on the field in real time. And Steven, to your point, CJ doesn't didn't really feel that, it seems like, at all. And so I don't know mm-hmm. if a backside blitz like that to your blind side, should you feel that a little bit more? Almost like the fact that CJ didn't feel it at all almost leads me – to suspect that he's anticipating that somebody on the end of the line is going to pick up that, right? That maybe, oh, well, if somebody's coming there, my tight end's going to at least handle him a little bit. So he got blindsided there, and it just, again, it just kills that drive. Now they're coming, Steve. Now they're coming. (laughs) Go ahead, go ahead. No, no, you're going down the road I was going to go on anyway. Go ahead. So they're coming. Now we get to the next drive, and this is third and seven. This is the play where Marvin Harrison gets hit in the end zone. Steven, on third and seven, they rush seven. There's only six blockers in the play. They bring seven guys on third and seven, and all CJ can do is bail. We're talking about, oh, CJ's done a good job at time. There's no sidestepping and staying in the pocket on this. He's bailing right almost off the snap because it is everybody after him. And Ohio State's outnumbered. There's nothing you can do. You can't block seven guys with six blockers. And he throws this miraculous ball to Marvin. We all know what happened. But this is the beginning, Stephen, of this, I think, ultra uh, Georgia aggression that is going to sort of take over in the final quarter. And CJ still made a miraculous play here, and it almost worked. 
but it certainly wasn't the play that was called because Georgia brought the house. Georgia caught dialed up the right play blitz at the time when Ohio State didn't necessarily call an offensive play to counter that because in that situation, if it was a quick passing play, maybe CJ just gets rid of the ball quickly, but everybody's downfield. So he has no choice but to bail in that situation. I mean, kudos to him for basically like backpedaling the entire time and making that throw. But it's around the same time when momentum started to shift a little bit because Georgia has finally figured some things out offensively, and now they're sending blitzes left and right on, on the defense. And so it, it did seem like this is – I don't want to say momentum completely shifted because the Marvin Harrison thing is part of why momentum shifted, but you could feel like Georgia understood in this situation this would be a big stop, especially if they held Ohio State to a field goal right here. And they did. So this is what we'll talk about Marvin Harrison Jr. and leaving the game. And I think we both, all of us said in the post-game podcast, we believe if Marvin Harrison Jr. had stayed in the game, Ohio State would have won. This is a very difficult call here, Nathan, because it's called targeting on the field, and then the review takes the targeting away. If the targeting remains, it's going to be first and goal from the three. Without the targeting, it's a field goal. So this is a four-point swing, potentially, and it is one of these things where I I just I think Ohio State is not pleased with the fact that this was overruled. And I think that discussion may continue. There were some other targetings that weren't called. There was certainly one in the TCU Michigan game on the last play of the game that people are discussing. There were a couple others in bowls. This is a really tough spot, Nathan, because Ohio State goes over three here. They don't get the penalty, which would have given the first down. They don't get the catch. And I do it was kind of coming out of Marvin Harrison Jr.'s hands, but I think he, I don't know, I think he also saw the guy who was like sort of coming at him like a freight train from 10 steps away. So they don't get the catch, they don't get the penalty, and then they lose the guy. So there are three bad outcomes here where at least Ohio State maybe could have gone one for three, right? They go 0 for three, and it leads to a field goal. I mean, obviously, the turning point of all turning points. But even even if the other things happen, but they keep the targeting penalty, Ohio State, I think, cashes this in for a touchdown, and that alone makes it a very different game. Well, yeah, or just if he's able to return to the game. <laughs> I mean, um, th- that's the thing. I mean, it's one thing to, it's one thing to not catch the ball. It's one thing to have the refs make that decision, but to to then lose him for the entire fourth quarter of a one point game with these stakes, uh, that that I think is what will sit with fans maybe the toughest. Even though that it's not, it's a little bit out of everybody's control, right? Um, he said after the game, I understand what the medical staff was saying. It was, you could watch the game broadcast. Obviously we don't, we're not watching this in real time, but when he goes, it shows him sitting on the bench next to CJ. And it looks like he says, where's my helmet? I'm reading his lips and I'm not, I, I'm not a lip reader. Um, but that's, it looks like he says something like that. And maybe I'm completely wrong. Um, and then CJ says something to him, like, and then the camera's cutting away. So um, I, I don't know. But, like, Marvin Harrison said he f- felt like he could go back in the game, that he wanted to go back in the game, but that the medical staff made its decision and he respected that. So uh, that's just – it's when you're already down Jackson Smith and Jigba, you're already down Trevion Henderson, and you're thinking to yourself, but if you get a great game from Marvin Harrison Jr., maybe you can still beat these guys. And you're getting that game, and then he gets knocked out. 
it I understand why from a fan perspective, like emotionally, that's just like the like how many more body blows can you take? Like how many more how many more punches are you already now you're just punching on the bruises that are already there and it's it's hard to take. The losing the Marvin part hurt at the end of the game on that final drive, but I think the losing the penalty probably hurt overall because I mean that's a four point difference in a game where you lost by one point. So, I mean, we're talking about a situation now. If, if that, if more than likely they cast that in from the three yard line, because uh, I mean, they had, I don't, the red zone issues hadn't been an issue all night. They probably would have just gone somewhere else with that ball at that point, even if they didn't have mine. Maybe you dial up something for a Mecca Buka to, to run it in, or maybe Dallas Hayes punches it in, or whoever in that situation. Or but you just go to your best player, Xavier Johnson. Just go to superstar Xavier Johnson. Yeah, or you yeah, or you just go to Xavier Johnson because why not? But, <laughs> but the point is, you get the ball back now after Georgia's last drive of the game, and now you're trying to ice it instead of being the team who was trying to you know punch it full throttle because you're not trying to win the game. Well, and here's the other thing: like they don't have to punch it in for it to have affected the game in a huge way. Is let's say you run three plays and Georgia still stuffs you. How much time does that take? Mm-hmm. Over a minute, over a minute of time, maybe. Now Georgia gets the ball back and has to drive the length of the field to get a touchdown with like <coughs> under 50 seconds to play or something. Like it's a very different circumstance at the end of this game. Uh, so yeah, you're right. I mean, the getting the penalty there would have given you um, some assurances. It would have given you. Uh, it would have. It would have helped from a clock standpoint in the long run of the game. I think for Ohio State, and it might have helped in a huge way from points standpoint. So Ohio State kicks a field goal there to go up 38-24. It's just two scores. If they score touchdowns, 42-24. It's three scores. So that's yep. – that. And I don't – do we have an understanding right now as to why it was overturned, why it was not a – upon so review, the why it was still not a targeting call? The officials did not specify, and um, I don't – know that they that any pool reporter was sent there and i didn't think to ask at the time whether someone was sending a whether the usually like the the pro football writers association has someone who is designated for that job um like i've I've done that for basketball before i've i've said it on games and been the like at the ncaa tournament where they just have you like hey you're not covering this next game right well can you just be here in case we need to send somebody to the officials locker room after the game um and Fortunately for me, it didn't happen. I got to go home. But uh, we, they I probably needed to be asked because it, it it ended up having that much impact. I think when I watched the replay, and I know that my uh, targeting interpretations are sometimes very controversial on this podcast. When I look at it, I I think I see shoulder pad to shoulder pad. I don't think I see head neck contact, which is one of the th- things that. You, is a factor for targeting. I think that's ultimately what they saw was that it was a hard hit. Um, and I'm trying to think Marvin Harrison even referred to the hit in some way after the game. And I'm, I think he called it just a normal play or a normal hit, something like that. So it, he certainly wasn't in the time that I was at his locker calling it out as some kind of a, you know, cheap shot or anything. Uh, but I, if I, when I look at it and I think they didn't the, whoever they had as the official after on the broadcast, I believe they said, it was said a clip. He said it was a clean hit. Uh, the, the only, I think one of the things, it was, I mean, because he's defenseless because he's looking up in the air, but right. it wasn't proud of the head. He didn't hit him in the head. It's just a hard football hit. 
Right. So I think that's what he his interpretation in the moment was that that's what the officials probably saw too. Is that you're talking? It was really shoulder pad to shoulder, not um, head neck, not some of the there's other indicators too. Like are you thrusting up? And it's 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 a it's a complicated call. And I know that it's burned Ohio State in the past, and this is burning them in a different way with the same call. I get it, but I actually think that might have been the right call. Did Marvin say after the game if he was out? Because it looked like he might have been when he was on his back. Was he briefly knocked out? So he was asked, and I, I don't know that he gave a great answer to that. I think people were trying to – I remember trying to push him for that. Let me just double-check that. He was asked, were you unconscious? And I think he said no. Okay. Did you lose consciousness when okay. you got hit? I think, you, I think he said no. Okay, so that's a big moment. Changes the game in multiple ways. Next time Ohio State gets the ball back, this is now just kind of back to football, Stephen. This is kind of like Tyleek Williams had the pass deflection that we talked about on the, on the last podcast. Second down on the next drive, the 11th drive of the game, they block Jalen Carter well, and he gets his he gets his p- finger on a ball and deflects it, which wipes out what had been a pass interference call against Joe Royer, which sets up a third and seven where CJ runs and comes up a half yard short. And that's when I was like, see, that, that's what you get when CJ Stroud runs. Why would he bother to run? And then I was like, oh, then he wins practically wins the game by running right, yeah. but again i don't i don't think this is a disastrous drive steven i don't think this is an example of oh this is terrible but it's a little bit right sometimes a guy tips a ball but also cj gets out of the pocket and runs there because i think they get some pressure because they're bringing dudes again so george is still bringing people they get a there's a tip and there's a quarterback who's running who comes up a yard or a half yard short which sets up the fake punt which then we could talk about, but just the drive itself, Stephen. I don't think it's Ohio State didn't fall apart, but they just had two plays in a row that didn't get them the ten yards they needed. The Carter thing is unfortunate because it is passing a France on Joe Royer if it, if he doesn't break it up, and so that's a big. That's I don't think Carter was kind of silent all night, but that's an impactful play at a time when you absolutely need, especially since there's laundry on the ground, and then. It kind of got ugly for Ohio State. It, it wasn't like ugly in terms of just execution. It just got ugly because of how Georgia decided to play defense. And now CJ can't just sit back there and pick guys apart because one, he's missing his best weapon again, but then also Georgia sending guys left and right at him. And so he does come be more, maybe come be more of a running back than maybe a quarterback at times in that, in that fourth quarter. And then yes, the, the fake punt the, that Ohio State just can't seem to execute. Yeah, so I don't know, Nathan. Like this is some of this is just football, right? It's just it's just football. Your quarterback got flushed out, and he tried to make it running it, and then they could not have had twelve guys on the field more than they had twelve guys on the field. There were twelve guys. They were planting flags. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. There were twelve, no doubt about it. Twelve proud Buckeyes on the field for the fake punt. So maybe they would have gotten away with it, but we kind of covered that in a previous podcast. But like Nathan, this is just one of those where. We're kind of looking for great plays and mistakes, right? Oh, because Ryan Day after the game, we'll get to the last drive. There was something he said he doesn't wish he had back, but there, there are others like there are some plays you wish you had back. I have a play coming up that I'm pretty sure he wishes I had back. But like this drive, the 11th drive of the game, Nathan, I don't think – I think it's just football. And it's like, ooh, that was close. Oh, that was close. Oh, that was close. Tip pass. 
half yard short on the run, fake punt timeout, and all of a sudden you're punting, and that's just the way it goes, Nathan, sometimes when you're playing the best team in the country. Yeah, that's what I said right after the game. You know, two great teams play and one great team has to lose. And um, that that's where that happens sometimes. I, the, the, I don't know how much we want to talk about the 12 men on the field. I just don't understand how that like we're talking to Donovan Jackson after the game. And he and um, Josh Fryer were in on that punt fake. And they're not normally in on punt fake. This was something that they had drilled specifically for it to come up in this specific situation in this playoff game. Like they've been working on it since the Michigan game. So after having something like so go fantastically wrong in the Michigan game on a fake punt, I don't know how you do not have every, and it's, you know, whatever we're easy for us to say and criticize. And we, 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 are we perfect in every single thing we ever do? No. But like, how do you have that big of a, where 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 you where you can't have self sabotage in a game like this, and um, again, again, like you, and the other one is almost more defensible. Listen, you've got the it's the backup long snapper. He just didn't hear the call from what he said. A guy who in 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 a perfect world wouldn't even been in that situation. Like that one to me, under those circumstances, is more believable. And at least there, you at least got the snap off and he punted it. Um, here to have had to play dialed up and practiced and staffed specifically for this moment and to then execute it perfectly. Uh, but it wouldn't have mattered because even if the guy hadn't called the timeout, you would, you would put too many guys on the field. I just, I, I, some hard questions have to be asked about, about a lot of things when it comes to special teams at Ohio state right now. Special teams blunders have been way too much of a topic of conversation all season, though, outside of just fake punts. I mean, we were, we had a point in the year where we were asking Ryan Day about why are they bringing up Emeka Buka so close in the punt return just to have him go get punted over his head in his muffin punts. So th- this has been a, I mean, they played 13 games. They're probably half of them were after the game were asking questions about why the special teams are not better in some aspect. It is odd. I mean, clearly part of this fake fake punt was snap it quick because they're putting yes. guys out there who aren't like Kirby Smart said it looked like a fake punt. They had guys on the field who normally right. aren't normally part of the punt unit. But all of them looked like they were clearly in their spot doing their job. So that's mm-hmm. the part of it like who's the extra guy? Cuz they had three receivers out left, two punt protectors, the punter that six and then six guys on the line. Who who was wrong? Because there wasn't anybody who looked out of place. It just looked like, hey, what's this fake? It's like, oh, this is our 12-man fake. It's like, oh, tricky. You think they'll call it? Uh, we hope not. <laughs> so, anyway. And, well, and, and who knows if they would have called it. Like, it, that, like that, that timeout call came as they were snapping After the ball. Snap. Yeah. Like, it was instantaneous. <laughs> so, you would like to say, well, maybe the official – would have thrown a flag on that if the timeout hadn't happened. But the snap was basically happening at that same time too. And there had been no flag yet. So I don't, I didn't see a flag get thrown that they just picked up. I don't think. So maybe they would have gotten away with having 12 men on the field too. Maybe that would have been like, after all these bad luck things happened, Kate Stover, Marvin Harrison, etc. that could have been the good luck thing that made the difference in this game. And it did well, even then, they, they would have probably reviewed it because you'd have had to get your offense back on the field. And 
someone would be like, wait a minute, something's not right here. Would have been another good thing to have a pool reporter ask the officials after the game. I wish I wish there had been a Football Writers Association past president at the game who could have facilitated perhaps yeah. someone going down as a pool shame. Way to go, FWAA. Idiots, terrible presidents. All right, two more drives left. I think this is the play of the game. I think this is the call that Ryan Day would want back. I think it is the moment, the last best moment to put it away. It's the 12th drive. It's second and five. It is at the 18-yard line of Georgia. And they call what is a very slow developing play. And both mm-hmm. Dallin Hayden yeah. out of the backfield and Mitch Rossi at tight end kind of release yeah. out into a short route to the left. And Javon Bullard, who has blitzed before, is blitzing off the right side and just destroys C.J. Stroud. And it is a loss of 12 yards from the 18-yard line. And they had th- this is a drive that had been working to this point they had picked up three first downs on that drive and this is a go down and potentially like make this a two score game drive because they're up by three if you score a touchdown here it's kind of over or at least you're going to be in a position where george is going to have like score an onside kick or whatever like it's this is a chance to and on second and five nathan i don't even know what they were trying to do because i i guess it because it doesn't exactly look like a screen, but it is slow developing. They don't pick up the blitzer at all. And when Ryan Day says there are play, and it's kind of a coach speak thing, you say there are plays you wish you had back. I think this is number one. I think this is the play of the game. This was the chance where you had the opportunity still to go put this away. And it had been a good drive to this point. And this play goes horribly wrong which then sets up a third and 17 that we'll talk about in a second. But Nathan, I thought this was, this is number one on my list of bad play calls. Yeah, it, it really stands out. And it was the one exception other than you were right. The, the, the design run, the like zone read that CJ ran earlier in the game that fizzled immediately. You were like, okay, what was that? This was maybe one of the only other examples of like, uh, like, I don't know what that was supposed to, I don't know what that was supposed to be. I don't know what you thought the end game was. On that, um, especially when you don't have Marvin Harrison Jr. in the game anymore, because uh, he's a guy that can kind of freelance things when he needs to. And if a play is breaking down, he can do things with it that maybe some other guys can't. But just just a just a bad just. a And, and there's also like it's it's the it's the mat, it's the mix of things. Right. It's not just that this was maybe not the right call for Ohio State. It turned out to be the wrong call at the exact wrong time because it left him vulnerable to exactly what Georgia was doing on the play bring a bullet in that blitz too cute for second and five just at that slam. point in that game it was probably better to, yeah just be like that they picked the wrong time to be now if it works then we're saying oh look at this amazing thing but it didn't so it's it's too cute just it's second and five you're on schedule at worst run something where it's now third and two don't go from second and five to third and 17 and that's all that play was going to do which i think this play was in their minds on the final drive of the game, which we will get to in a moment. But first, Stephen, after this play goes wrong, third and 17, the next play, there's pressure again. Mm-hmm. And CJ sees it. I think a mech is open over the middle for a first down. As yeah. tough as that is. Yeah. When they give the overhead shot, it's 
it's there. And in the moment, because there is pressure again, because Georgia is now bringing everybody in the fourth quarter. See, that's not where CJ's eyes are right at that moment. But if that's were, and maybe it's not his first read, right? But if his eyes were there and he saw it immediately and threw it, I think it would have been a miraculous third and 17 pickup that we'd still be talking about because the Mecca got open and it's third and 17 is tough. He ends up trying to throw a check down to Drew Royer that, that doesn't work in Ohio. They want CJ to take check downs. So like, that's what he's looking for. Get rid of the ball. Don't take another sack and get knocked out of field goal range. Cause they do wind up kicking a 48 yard field goal here. They're right at the edge of the range, but you could, you saw it, right? I mean, we all saw it. You saw it. It's, it was maybe yeah. there, Steven, if, it, if they could have done it. I think it was his first read, but when you're bringing the house like that, can you even get there? Or do you just at that point give it because we'd seen it before. It's the same kind of situation we were in earlier when Marvin got hurt, where it's when you bring the house, it doesn't matter what your first read is. If it's already down the field, you've got to do whatever you can out of get out of there or get rid of the ball. And in that situation, instead of the first situation, he just got out of there. In that situation, he's just got to go to the closest side to him who's a check down. So I think it might have been his first read, and they got the look they were looking for. It's just Georgia got on CJ a lot faster than maybe they were anticipating. Okay, so that brings us now to the 13th and final drive of the game for Ohio State. Ohio State takes over on its own 25 with 54 seconds left. CJ scrambles to the right for five on the first play. Really well done play on second down for 12 yards to Julian. Just really well done. Just like what we were talking about early in the game, like perfect Ohio State offense. Just looks like an easy 12-yard throw, perfectly executed. Next up is this 27-yard CJ run, which he is just, in the midst of that play, he's lost for a minute, Nathan. He's lost. He's like looking sideways. His body is turned completely sideways at one point. And I think maybe he's getting ready to throw a little check down, I think maybe to Mitch Rossi. And then he's like, nope, not going to do that. And then he likes, like does a curly cue to get out of that pressure and then starts running. And by the way, again, the overhead view they show on the broadcast, it's like all the routes are down the field. It is wide open. It is the long con. He's not going to run. And he runs. And Nathan, it is like you could set this to cello music. Bum, 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 bum. It's like chariots of fire. Like this is, they would be like recreate children. If they had won this game and won the national championship, this is the, this is 85 yards through the heart of the South. If it, if it leads to a win, here he is. CJ Stroud never before had he, and in the moment, bum, 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 bum. And every, everybody is standing. Go CJ slow motion. And then they lost. But it's still, Nathan, it's a great play. And you loved it. You knew it. You knew it was coming. You were like, yes, do it for me, CJ. It's a, it's a long con that stretches all the way back to Rancho Cucamonga in like uh, eight years ago. Um, I did a story last year when we were out there and talked to his one of his first youth coaches. And, and when he was first playing football, all he wanted to do was run the ball. He thought that's what you did as a quarterback. He saw Mike Vick. He saw other guys, and he wanted to run with it, and that was the coach that had to teach him, like, no, 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 you got to stay in the pocket. you got to make reads and, and do things, and that's what how he became the coach he is. But my favorite part of that whole sequence in that fourth quarter, and I can't remember if it was that particular run or the other kind of longish one he has, but it's just how much he was feeling it. Like, he gets up off the ground, and he is, like, popping like you can tell that like he's he is digging like this identity that he at long last has reached into himself and pulled out and uh, what what better time 
Like it, we everything that Ohio State fans and not all of them, but a lot of them had been very vocally asking for from C.J. Stroud uh, came just pouring out in Mercedes-Benz Stadium that night. Okay, then they don't score. I think the Javon Bullard sack on the previous drive that almost knocked them out a field goal range is playing in their minds here, Stephen. I think a quarter of Georgia bringing the house and being pretty effective with it is playing on their minds here. They are, after CJ's run, they are looking at a 49-yard field goal. It's not that they are happy with a 49-yard field goal, but they don't want to try a 60-yard field goal. They just took a sack for a loss of 12 on the previous series. I think they start, I think Ryan Day starts thinking about that. And I don't think it is unreasonable. But I think if, if I do believe I bet Ryan Day regrets that whatever second down call that was before, this first down run call that people didn't love, I think is related to that. And he says he does not take it back. When you rewatched it, Stephen, did you think, or did you think, mm, I get it? I think they missed Mayan Williams because I think Mayan Williams gets six yards. And um, that's a whole different situation. It's almost a who are you missing more? Because we're going to get into this too, though, on the slant. Are you missing Marvin Harrison more on that slant where you throw it to Xavier Johnson? Or are you missing Mayan Williams more on this run where you give it to Dallin Hayden? Because I think Mayan Williams gets four or five yards here, and then you give it to him one more time. Because then you're you're also forcing Georgia to use your timeouts at this situation. So it's it's a – you're missing the guys that in both of those situations that you needed to be most impactful in that situation where they just needed to keep the ball going, keep the ball moving, keep getting closer and closer and get Noah Rogos as close as possible while also making Georgia use timeouts. And you were missing both of those two people who are, who could possibly make that happen for you. I don't know, Nathan, if coaches think like this, but also CJ Stroud just ran 27 yards. He might be breathing a little heavy. To be like, oh, okay, great run, CJ. Line up and now throw another pass that we need to be precise and on target and make sure if a blitz is coming, you don't get the baby do it. Hand it off. Hand it off here. We're not giving up, but we can't take a sack. We think it can work. We really we're happy with like another five yards. We're good. Like I don't I think there's probably a lot of things going into this decision here, Nathan, to run the ball like that on first out. That's an interesting point that I hadn't considered, but and it would be interesting to ask Ryan Day that, that if that's at all factors into that um, moment. Um, it's a little different in the college game because you get the first down, the clock isn't still running, you don't have to run up and spike it, you you can get a minute to catch your breath, but um, but it, maybe, that it wouldn't shock me, I guess, if maybe that was something you considered, but he talked about it more that they just liked the element of surprise there and the like the look that they got from Georgia and they thought a run play would be successful, or at least that specific run play would be successful. I just think if you're going to call that run play there, we started this whole podcast off talking about the one thing they really couldn't avoid or the one thing they had to avoid in the run game was just stagnation and negative plays and how they had, that's what we talked about coming in. And then at the start of this podcast, we talked about how, well, really for all night, they kind of did that. They, you know, it wasn't a huge rushing night, but they just kind of kept the legs churning and at least got a couple, three yards. And then this is the one where they go backwards and it just stalls out. And 
I just think you, I don't know. You got to win that play. I guess he's no more tired than the offensive linemen are. Yeah, but the off, well, also, which might factor into, hey, are we, are we sure we're going to pick up everybody that's going to be coming? We can't. Yeah. You cannot get Maybe. sacked there. You cannot get sacked and you cannot yep. have a turnover. So it feels like a loss of right. one on a run is bad, but it is certainly not the worst thing that could have happened on first down. So let's go to second down, which no. is another no. hugely critical play. This is Georgia bringing pressure again. Emeka Buka on a slant is the first read, and the edge guy drops right in the passing lane. This is one of those where you it's simulated pressure. You're dropping edge guys. You're bringing extra linebackers up the middle. Abuka is clearly the first read, Stephen. And CJ looks right at him. And to CJ's credit, sometimes that's not, that lot, that's how you pick off a quarterback. That's underneath guys that you don't expect to be there. CJ sees him, goes to Xavier Johnson. Could have been caught, not shouldn't have been caught. Could have worked. It's Ringo on Xavier Johnson. It's a tough spot. It's the second read. Also, you can't take a sack there. You got to get rid of the ball. But as you watch it happening on the rewatch, Stephen, you see. I think it's number eleven. You see him dropping in that throwing lane. It's like, oh man, mm-hmm. that's another really good. De- Georgia, I think in this in the fourth quarter, Stephen, last twenty minutes of this game, I thought Georgia really made some good defensive calls, and this was another one. Georgia made CJ start getting the second and third reads while also sitting in the pocket before the pressure got there. And then, I mean, we've talked about it at length at this point. It's like, you want to go to your best receiver at that point. That's a Mecca They take that away. If that's Marvin Harrison coming on the slant, it's probably caught because that's 6'4", 205. Instead, it's, what is Xavier Johnson? Like 6'1", 195. Keely Ringo's the bigger guy in that situation. Yes. So instead, it ends up just being a pass breakup. Like, that's the key there is, Typically, slant pass. It's like it's always it's always nice on slants to have the bigger guy, and the corner just happened to be the bigger guy in that situation. And there weren't too many opportunities in those one-on-one situations where Keely Ringo was the bigger guy because it was typically Mar- Marvin. Because if you remember, there was a time earlier in the game where they ran a um, a, a goal fade to, to Julian Fleming in the in the red zone for Keely Ringo, and he knocked that one away too because Keely Ringo is bigger than Julian Fleming is. Like boxing out a rebound. Like, usually they have a power forward yeah. trying to box out Keely Ringo, and now they had a shooting guard trying to box out Keely Ringo. It doesn't work as well. Which Correct. brings us, Nathan, to the third down and the thing that you referred to earlier, Nathan. It's, again, I hate when they do this, but they the TV broadcast comes out of the replay, like, as the third down play is happening. Yeah. But what you can see is the way it happened is they wind up with Joe Royer on an edge rusher, one-on-one, and he doesn't, he doesn't get the block. And the play's over before it starts. Like it is, it is, it's not a miracle, but Nathan, like that could have been a sack. And all of a sudden we're talking about Ohio State's trying to throw like a, now you're in a fourth and 16 or something. You're not kicking a field goal. So all CJ can do there is avoid the sack. And it's because whatever happened, Ohio State wound up in a one-on-one matchup where they're trying to block a Georgia edge guy with a tight end who hasn't played the whole year and it blew the play up. Yeah. Uh, I I don't know. I mean, I don't know what else to say. That's and you know, it's you're watching a play where Mitch Rossi is lined up in the backfield because he is, I guess, your best option in pass pro right there. Because you're down Trevin Henderson, you're down Mayan Williams, and you don't want it to be a a true freshman. Uh, and I guess you don't you get you like Rossi over Chip Trainum right there. So then that means Rossi's not the guy on the edge. That means it has to go to to somebody else. I guess I'm curious why, if it was just going to be a blocking situation, maybe you wouldn't turn to uh, Josh Fryer there, but maybe just the design of the play, if that if that edge rush doesn't come, now does Royer 
have some receiving I think, yeah. opportunity. I think he out. Yeah, I think he can pop out and be a receiver in a way that some that Fryer you wouldn't want him to be. So it's you're just they Ryan Day said it after the game that when Stover got hurt, it really put them in a bind in some personnel groupings. And you saw that time and time and time again. And I mean, there was earlier at the start of that drive, like Royer came out, he was kind of a late addition, like coming out on the field and then didn't really know where he was supposed to be. And they had to move him around. And I'm I'm not really trying to poop on Joe Royer here. It's just evidence of, because he hadn't barely, he'd been hurt all year. He barely played. Like it was just more evidence of how catastrophic the, the Cade Cade Stover absence was and the ripple effects that you saw of that just throughout this game. So they didn't win. If you're just tuning in now and you're like, oh, I wonder what happened in that playoff. Did Ohio State <laughs> win? They get to the end of this podcast and they lost by a point. They missed the field goal. A 50-yard field goal is a lot to ask. I don't know if we talked about it. Noah Ruggles' mom put out a statement on Twitter on behalf of her son just talking about the fact that like he loves being a Buckeye and, you know, I, I – it's a tough ask. We we covered that on the on the pod with the Texas survey. It's, it is a really tough ask in that situation. As much as like the forty eight yarder, maybe would have been good from fifty. It wasn't like it. It didn't. It wasn't it drilled been through the middle of the uprights. Like it was. No. You can just see it's it's the very edge of his range. It's it is absolutely the edge of his range. I was saying like, I was waiting because everybody was talking about. It's funny as people talk about the timing of the field goal with the New Year's Eve ball drop. And I think on TV, it synced up perfectly. I had my phone out as it was happening live in the stadium. And the kick was off his foot seven seconds before my Apple phone. And I think Apple is connected to the moon. I don't know. That's the official when it turns midnight. But there's a delay. There's like a delay on TV. So the delay on TV made it sync up perfectly. It was still before midnight. I was saying like, what if... It's going to like hit the crossbar as it hits midnight. It's going to be like bong because it was again like it's right there. His his range might be 50 and a half yards at maximum, right? So this is not – it's not on the kicker. It's all the other things that led up to it. But as we think about this, Stephen, offensively, to me in the end, in 13 drives, Ohio State had five perfect drives, and they cashed them in. They cashed them in. They cashed them in. And Georgia – in the fourth quarter, figured out, like, we're down. And I think almost like being down, Steve, was like, what are we going to do? Sit back and let C.J. Stroud pick us apart? Let's get after him. If we give it up, mm-hmm. we give it up. We're down 14. Once they get down 14, they start coming. And they, the blitzes were effective enough to short circuits and drives. But if you're going up against the best defense in the country and you have five perfect drives that turn into touchdowns, and then, you know, your eight other drives, you get two field goals out of, you only get six other points. I, I do think there's some world where it's like, you know, you knew it was going to have to be in the 40s, so 41 wasn't enough. They needed 44 or 48, or, and they didn't get there. But I'm as we go through this, Stephen, I don't see catastrophic failings by the Ohio State offense, either in terrible play calling. You know, again, we talked about the plays here and there you wish you had back. Like just players making gigantic mistakes. Like you would look at Michigan and say, oh, if they don't. I, they played some really good offense for a long time, Stephen. They just couldn't play really good offense for long enough. 
to beat Georgia. So can we come, can we get to the end of the, the defense podcast and the offense podcast, breaking down this game and come to two conclusions that are like, I don't know that high state kind of did pretty well. It just wasn't quite good enough. Or do we find more failings here offensively on the drives that weren't perfect? I think if you're going to be nitpicky, you had five perfect drives that ended in touchdowns, but you also had four, three and out drives and two of them where things went backwards basically the entire time, but I do, that's probably, while Georgia had one three and out, but that's probably nitpicky. I think offensively, more than defensively, um, I think defensively, you just didn't have enough talent to begin with. I think offensively, it's just like six months of having your talent get chipped away at, and it finally came home to roost in the fourth quarter. Because we've we've said it enough times. I mean, you had an all-American level receiver. You lost him, so you created another one. Then you lose him. You've got an all-American level running back who is in and out the lineup. And then, like, the guy who's supposed to be as good as him basically is healthy enough to give you one good play the entire game. And I don't know – I don't know what you do with that as a fan, but that's just the reality of all the guys that you probably – if we would have – I mean, we did a whole list of most important Buckeyes. We did it twice. We did it in – preseason and we did it halfway through the season and if we go look at both of those lists and who are in the top 10 for offense how many of those guys made it to the end of this game let alone played in the game to begin with what do you think nathan yeah i mean if you're playing blame game ultimately i think you still put more blame on the defense they were the ones that were given a 14 point lead going into the fourth quarter and and gave up the huge plays you know it wasn't in as much as it was the the 70 some yard touchdown play 76 yards the other drive was 72 yards and took five plays like it was just instant mm-hmm. it was just a zip down so ultimately i think you still put it on the defense um and then especially though as what steven's saying like just how many more people could you pull off of the field we forget matt jones is playing with a bum right ankle the whole time like heavily taped right ankle and going up against the you know, best defensive tackle in the country and holding his own. And just just all the things that were besieging this offense by the end of this game. Like, if this had gone to overtime, who knows who else would have got hurt? It was just one of those nights. And to do everything they did against this team, um, yeah, it wasn't perfect, but it's not going to be perfect because it's Georgia. You have to get as close to perfect as you can. I thought they they almost maximized it. Um do they, did they need one more play? Did they need, but but they also needed something to go their way, and that was something else that sort of escaped them. Whether that was the 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 call on the targeting, whatever. Like they they kind of needed a break, probably. They just never came. So I do think we had talked about earlier this season that there was maybe an impression by some people that C.J. Stroud can't handle the blitz, and then I think we went through the stats and said I don't think we think that's true. I don't think it was that C.J. Stroud couldn't handle the blitz against Georgia, but I think Ohio State's offense didn't handle it late in the game. And I don't know. It's not on C.J. to me because it's like guys who just came in free and there was no time to do anything. Five perfect drives. I just wrote down like my one or two word answer for the other eight drives describing the most important play to me that kept that drive from continuing. And here they are. Blitz. Drop. Penalty, blitz, blitz and no targeting call, tip pass, blitz, and then that edge guy dropping into the passing lane on the Omeka slant. 
So that's one, two, three, four of the eight are blitz-induced endings of those drives, whether it was on second down or third down. And I think in the end, that's kind of they, – they figured it out. It was because, Stephen, Georgia with individual talent wasn't mm-hmm. getting it done enough. So they had to go to something else. They had to go to design. They had to go to risk. They had to go to out. We're going to outnumber you in the moment and hope it pays off. And there's no downside for us because we're losing already. And then it won in the game. So I think that idea that talent for talent, it wasn't Keely Ringo or Jalen Carter or any individual bulldog who ruined this Ohio State offensive game plan. It was in the end, Will Muschamp and Glenn Schumann and Kirby Smart decided to dial it up, and there were just enough times where the numbers won out. And and most of the time, Stephen, like I don't know what CJ was supposed to do. Like, oh, well, why didn't he run away or why didn't he step? They just it was like on him before he could do anything. And those three or four times, I think, were the difference in the game. I thought he had an answer for everything up until you run out of answers. <laughs> And that's what I, – I think that's the best way to describe that fourth quarter for CJ. It's like, I mean, I ran for 27 yards this time. I can't I can't run for 27 yards or run around and evade guys all night. At some point, it, it, Georgia was – we. I, Dave says no time. It's personnel, it's scheme, and it's coaching. I, I thought, well, the personnel part of it for Georgia's defense didn't necessarily shine for me. I thought the coaching and the scheme showed up in the moments when it ne- ne- absolutely needed to, especially as – you know, Ohio State's personnel started getting chipped at. Yeah, I think it's that combination. I think it was Georgia scheme and Ohio State leaking personnel. And that yep. combination was too much for Ohio State to overcome. All right, Nathan, last word for you. We've done defense. We've done offense. We covered the 12 men on the field for special teams. Ohio State missed a 50-yarder at the end, but that was a big ask. We're going to have a rants pod on Monday. Down the road, we're going to come back and talk about um, projected depth charts for offense and defense next season. We have all kinds of stuff coming on Buckeye Talk, but how do we wrap up this final look at this Peach Bowl loss for the Buckeyes? You know, I think it's going to linger for people. I'm sure it still is later, you know, almost coming up on a week removed when people are listening to this. And um, it, and that's it should, I guess. That's why That's why we do this. That's why people turn in five days a week. They care a lot about this program and they know how close they came to getting over this hump, which would have been huge for this program. Just winning this game would have been huge for this program, let alone what could be happening Monday night in Los Angeles had they won this game. So I think they, you know, let it hurt the right way. uh, But also I think come out of this game realizing that for all of the faults that we have pointed out, which are legitimate uh, that are in this program right now, you know, some positional deficiencies, some, some, some coaching decisions that have gone awry that you're right there with the crown jewel of college football right now um, on this. And, and we're within a whisper of beating uh, Georgia and, and being at the top of the sport right now. And that should mean something and it should give them some uh, enthusiasm and optimism, I think for 2023 still. I know that our focus had shifted a little bit as to, you know, the greatness of 2023 had sort of become maximizing the, the, uh, I mean, I should say the promise of 2023 had shifted to maximizing the reality of 2022. Um, and there are some big 
changes still to come and some big decisions to be made, some big resolutions as far as what this team is going to be in 2023. But I think that they should be competing for a playoff spot again in 2023. I think this uh, Ohio State should be back in the mix, assuming that uh, the biggest of those decisions, the quarterback one, doesn't go weirdly awry. All right, that's it for wrapping up the Peach Bowl. We appreciate you guys making Buckeye Talk part of your week. We'll be back next week with more Buckeye Talks. In the meantime, you can try the text at 614-350-3315. And, of course, read cleveland.com slash OSU. For Nathan Baird and Stephen Means, I'm Doug Maurice, and that was Buckeye Talk. Buckeye Talk.